Welcome to the Thought Leaders Podcast. We discuss what's trending in the online sphere. From podcast ad tech to the explosion of gaming, we sit down with experts in the field who share their experiences, successes, setbacks, and tips for anyone who wants to understand more about the world of digital content. Here's your host, Thought Leaders founder and CEO, David Tintner. All right. Hello, everybody. Today, I am joined with an incredible guest, the founder and host of Mixergy, Andrew Warner. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show today, and I'm excited to talk to you. Right on, David. It's good to talk to you again. Um, I have been a huge fan of everything you've been doing for a long time, and I've told you this several times before, but your show, your podcast has definitely been a huge influence on me, my own entrepreneurial journey. So first of all, Tell us and tell everyone who's listening exactly how you got started with the podcast. I had a company that was failing and then eventually failed, and I wanted to understand what did I do wrong? And I thought I could just kind of go through it on my own or I can open it up and talk to people who are smarter and more accomplished than me and find out more importantly, what can I do to do better next time? And so I started doing interviews with entrepreneurs who I admired and it just turned into a thing on its own. What I learned from them, I brought back into the business of Mixergy. What I learned from them, I brought back into my life. And what I realized was that one of my problems was that the first company that I started right out of school just was incredibly successful. It was a hit online greeting card company, did millions in sales, no outside funding, and I felt like, all right, I know everything. And I was someone who grew up as a kid selling candy, reading books on entrepreneurship. So I had reason to think that I I knew what went into entrepreneurship, even if I didn't feel like I knew what went into the rest of life. And through the act of asking questions, I had to acknowledge what I didn't know and be open to learning from other people. And and then the thing just kind of took off. And it turned out that there were other entrepreneurs out there who wanted to learn along the way. And there were other entrepreneurs who wanted to contribute. The founders of Airbnb were really helpful. Founders of Dropbox and so many other entrepreneurs came on, did interviews, learned, and supported. And, and see, right there, I think, is exactly what makes your, your show and your style so special is you're, you're super transparent. And it seems like you have no ego when you're interviewing. Is that is that something you've honed over time? Or is that just I don't have an ego. I I wonder if it's a mistake, to be honest with you, because I know when I listen to a lot of podcasts and radio shows, even before podcasts existed as a kid, I was looking for somebody who just felt like they were invincible so that I could listen to them and feel invincible, too. And what I ended up creating was not that, not me saying, look at how invincible I am. Look at how invincible these guests are. Take energy from that and go feel invincible through your day. Instead, I created this experience where it was okay for entrepreneurs to come on and be vulnerable and to talk about their problems. And that wasn't by design. I think if I could have organized it from the beginning, I would have gone towards that. We're invincible. Let's be invincible. But it just wasn't me. I found that I connected to people's challenges better and how they overcame them was more helpful for me than to understand that they were invincible. And so I stuck with that. And that is, that's the kind of conversation that, that I could do because I started out by saying I failed and I'm doing these interviews in order to succeed. It's also frankly the kind of conversation that 
especially once I moved to San Francisco and I'd have people over to my house for whiskey, I saw that some of the best entrepreneurs would talk openly about their challenges. They might tweet out that they sold their company, but in private, they're super open, even without me bringing it up, talking to each other about how their last round of investors got preferred this or that, and then they ended up taking all of the equity or all the all the sale price, and they got very little, and the little was only given to them as like a gift from the last round of investors. That's the kind of thing that's very common, and we all learn from that. And so it fits on Mixergy, and that's the way it ended up being. And now that it's been something that you've been doing for a while, I believe you're, you're what, 10 years? So now that it's become kind of, you know, you have a style, you have a way that people who are going to be a guest on your show know that you're kind of going to do an interview in a certain way. Is that something that you ever find is a challenge for you to get out of maybe? No, I, 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 I don't get out. I don't have a challenge getting out of it because of them. I have a challenge getting out of it because of me because I'm now in this groove where I'm the person that, has these super personal conversations. And by the way, you mentioned 10 years. I actually said about 10 years because I didn't want to say more than 10 years, but then I thought about it. 10 years as a creator making a good profit and 10 years as a creator, 10 years being able to do this, 10 years being able to take it in the direction that I feel compelled to, that I'm curious about, 10 years to be able to travel anywhere in the world. We lived in Argentina. We lived in D.C. We did, I did this in, in Tel Aviv. I did this, I think, in, yeah, in Mexico. I did this on Antarctica, these interviews. And so the freedom that comes from that as a creator is just a shock that that is even possible. If I was in school and a professor talked about it, I would have said that they were ridiculous. If a friend talked about it, I would have said that they were naive. It's shocking that that's possible. It's shocking that that's a world that's that's there and proven. Yeah, it's re- it's really cool. And I mean, a lot has changed in the creator economy and in the world of creators since you started. What would you say are some of the biggest changes that you've had to experience yourself? The, the who that's doing it and the how intensely they're doing it. So when I started, I was competing against traditional broadcasters. And you couldn't hmm. listen to Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit, unless you came to Mixergy. And he happened to be on – he was listening to Mixergy and he happened to come on to do an interview with Mixergy. Today, I wouldn't be surprised if Alexis Ohanian had his own podcast. Today, we're seeing that Dax Shepard, an actor with actor friends and an actor wife, can do a podcast. And so we're looking at people like that who have deep insider connections who are also competing. And then we're seeing people who have – an absolute obsession. I don't know if you've checked out the Wondery podcast, but they are absolutely obsessed mm-hmm. with production, with storytelling, um, to the point where they they will actually tell a better story even than the facts might support because they're such good storytellers. And so the level of competition is definitely heated up. I'll also say this. On the gentler side, the ease for which anyone can come on and the payoff that you get from it has also been reduced. So you can you can come in with just a simple podcast, simple even uh, simpler even than a podcast, just be on on uh, Twitter Spaces, talk to people and create, and you won't be on the level of maybe Mixergy. You won't be maybe on the level of Wondery. But you'll get access to people. You'll get a broader audience. You'll get to actually see results from it. And so that's. That's it's been opened up to a lot more people. So it's essentially it's easier to do it than it's ever been before, but the competition is much harder than it's ever been before at the same time. So what would you say a creator who's thinking about uh, starting a podcast, 
and getting into it now? What can they do to set themselves apart or to make it? I find that podcasting is a really tough area to start because there isn't a lot of discovery. Spotify is doing a better job of introducing users like me to podcasts related to the ones that we're listening to. But even there, it's hard to sample a new podcast because there's a new commitment to listening for a few minutes and it's it's a big it's a big investment. I think the podcasting is a hard place to start. It's an easier place to expand. And so you're going to see a lot more YouTubers say, I'm going to add podcasting to this because it's an easy medium to set up. If you're looking to make it in podcasting, I think it's going to be challenging. I, I think that it's better to do it somewhere else and then bring that audience to podcasting. I'd suggest though that it doesn't have to be the big thing that many people make it out to be. I would suggest that you can start much smaller and have smaller smaller needs met in a bigger way than you'd expect. So I want to ask you about your, your business, the Mixergy business. Take us through how you're making money today, um, different revenue sources and, and kind of percentage breakdown, if you will, of them. Sure. I'll, I'll tell you overall what it is, and then we can get to where we are today. The, there are two sources of revenue. One is advertising. At some point, I decided that I would put a link on the site uh, soliciting advertisers, and they come because they're looking for something that's unique. They're looking for something with a with a personal connection. And so advertising's there. I also had somebody come in and help grow the sponsorship. And so sponsorship, despite my expectations for it, has has gone has gone bigger than I expected. And then the other part is I take older I took older interviews and I said no one's going into a podcast feed and looking for older interviews. Once you get past 300 interviews it becomes overwhelming for people to go past and look for more and more of them. And so I took some of them and I put them behind a, a membership requirement and anyone who was paying for a monthly membership got that. And then I added on to that um, I'd bring back some of my old guests and say can you help teach a topic? You're especially good at whatever, and then I'd ask them to come on and teach it, and then that also went to my members. That's the heart of the business, and over the years, I've also added other things that were interesting to me or demanded from the audience, and so that would be live events. Um, bigger educational programs have been a component. We did services for a bit as a component, and then that kind of got spun off into its own thing, and so if you're asking me where we are today, I should tell you that around COVID, when my kids were blocked from going to school, I said, I'm going to do a little bit more homeschooling. Just before then, I'd finish seven marathons on seven continents. And I said, I think I want some space to figure out what I want to do and not continue. So I said that. I scaled back a little bit. COVID hit. My kids were out of school. I said, I'd like to try homeschooling. I scaled back a little bit more. And so today, we're just at very basic advertising in the interviews and membership for people who are listening to the interviews. And they're roughly 50-50. So that sounds a bit like you're, you're um, winding down Mixergy. No, I, I don't. I want to do Mixergy till I die. What I'm winding down is all the extra things that went into it. What I want to focus on is, I don't know. I want to stick with the interviews forever. I don't know what comes after. I don't know. And frankly, I took some time where I said yes to a lot of little things as long as they weren't long commitments because I tend to do things for a long period of time. And one of them was this guy, Robbie, in my audience said, Andrew, I'm writing a book on how to how introverts can talk to people. You've done well. Can you write a chapter? Usually I would have said, no, I'm not writing a chapter of your book. I have too much. But this was a period where I said, sure. 
I sat down and I wrote a chapter and then I sent it to him and then he said, actually, Andrew, this is not very good. Or he said, it's not what I'm looking for. I want you to teach a specific thing. And he told me what that was. So I went back and I wrote it and then he gave me feedback on that. And then I thought, you know what? I like this writing. And I said, how do I do more of it? And how do I get somebody to help me? And Robbie introduced me to an editor at Penguin um, who helped me with weekly writing sessions and feedback. And I ended up writing the book that I'd always wanted to do. And I've taken on little projects like that that I... I never had the time to take on. Okay. So so the book is uh, is now being published. It's now going through, what is it called, line editing, where they go through and make sure that Andrew didn't screw things up. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> like beyond is it clear, it's like is it consistent. And how was the whole process of, of writing a book, publishing a book, something you do again? You know what? It, it was so agonizing that at one point I – started looking for a ghostwriter and I remember sending an email to Ryan Holiday saying Ryan this is the worst thing I'd ever done how do I get out of it meaning like can you help me find someone and then he said to me did you read my book Perpetual Seller it's a book about how to write a book that sustains that survives uh, the test of time And I said, yes, and I went back to my notes, and then I circled the things that I'd highlighted in his book and said, is this what you're talking about? And he said, yeah. And what I sent back to him was these highlights that I made about all the different things that that writers had gone through. I think George Lucas had pulled out his eyebrows to point of baldness (laughs) while he was writing Star Wars, and there was a bunch of others. And his point was... You have to suffer through it for it to be worthwhile. And you know what? I suffered through it so much. I stuck with it. So it was super hard, but it was super meaningful to have gone through it and to say systematically, what did I do to have these great conversations over the years? How do I, how do I articulate it, show clear examples? So it was painful but meaningful. And in the end, I did condense the meaningful, <laughs> useful aspects of interviewing into a book. Andrew, I got the impression from you that you're someone who, who has a very high pain tolerance, let's say, and you, you're a marathon runner, you're, you know, you're describing this process of, of like this grueling process of getting through this hard work. I've listened to your audio essay about, about your life and how you describe your, your first business in kind of the same way. Do you think that that has been pretty core to your success as a creator, being able to be consistent and just grueling? Yes, yes. I'm really good at that consistency, lean into the pain and go through it for better or worse. You know, I have friends who will not stick with the pain and they'll move on and move on and move on. And for some people that works for me, I've accepted that I can deal with the pain of it. A marathon is a great example. You know, you're in the middle. I was in the middle of nowhere and I could just keep on running until I finished a marathon. Like the southern tip of Chile, I decided I would do a marathon there on my own, super windy. I had no clothes because I was scheduled to go to Antarctica, and all my cold weather clothes were on the plane to go to Antarctica, and I'm just sitting there, and it's windy, and there's nothing else to do while we're waiting for the flight to be cleared to go to Antarctica. And I said, I've never done a, a solo marathon in South America. I contacted one of the, the people who's taking me to, to Antarctica. I said, is this a crazy thing for me to do? The guy goes, Andrew, you're the only person who's not like, done something fun while waiting for this plane to go. Just go do the marathon. It was incredibly cold, super windy. I had to get one of these ponchos that a dude was selling on the street to tourists, and I put that on me, and I, and I ran my marathon. And I, I do find, you know what? 
if you don't have any other skill, but you can suffer and stick with something and can constantly improve, I think that there's a payoff in that. And Perpetual Seller, Ryan Holiday goes into that too. He says the longer you survive, the longer you can keep going. I'm constantly looking for what makes creators successful, businesses successful. And everyone I'm asking keeps coming back to this kind of like, just continue on no matter what mm. consistency is key and as i hear you talking about it i mean i think that that's just it's so core to you know you've done what is it well over a thousand interviews right over two thousand yeah over two thousand interviews yeah. yeah and i think that you know as you were mentioning before that it's never been easier for a creator to to start today or someone to start a podcast so only the people who are willing to just grind through the tough times, you know, grit their teeth and stick with it are going to be successful. You know what, David? I think it's a blessing to be able to even grind through it. And I'll I'll tell you why. There have been times in my life where I've had the motivation. I had the desire to do something. I knew that there was something in me that needed to come out, but I wasn't sure what. What direction do I take it in? What business do I start? Which one makes the most sense? Which customer should I go after? It's like all these different things. To actually know what you need to do tomorrow and to be really clear about it, but just know it's going to be hard work, is an absolute gift. Roger Dawson, this author that I read in, in college, he, he said, to some degree, it's easier to be a brain surgeon than it is to be an entrepreneur, which sounds like it sounds ridiculous. But he meant, look, if you want to be a brain surgeon, they're going to tell you what you need to do. You know what schooling you need to go through. You know what hoops. You have to just go through and do it. To be an entrepreneur, and I'd say today to be a creator, there isn't that clear path. There's no school that says do this, come back, do better tomorrow. and come. There's none of that. So we're fortunate to at least when we find our hook, our thing that works, that, that jives with us, that jives with an audience that we believe in, to be able to grind it out and just keep going and going and going and and creating. And and I'd say this one one thing since I'm since I'm praising the act of grinding it out, I say that there's also a challenge in that, and that is that you can end up getting a lot of dust on your work, going and improving. It's easy to make incremental changes and not then say, what can I do to scrap it all and start brand new, or what if I had to do it today, how would I do it? So speaking of your your systems and your processes, can you take us through your your company? Who do you have working for you? Who's doing what? And what are you doing yourself? We we're now with two people who help me, and I should say it's two people and one great piece of software. That software is PipeDrive. It's very similar to Trello. It's just a board with columns representing each step of our process, and for each potential guest, there's a card on the board. And the reason I say that is because the BitCloud podcast doesn't have that. It's very easy for me to forget that I need to interview someone because we don't have anyone in the pipeline. It's just you need a way to keep it all organized. And so when someone suggests a guest, they go into the first column of our board. And then somebody else needs to say, yes, that's a good person to come through. And so in that case, it might be Andrea, my assistant, who says, this is a good guest. I think we should do it. It might be Ari, who's our producer, who says, yes, I can see that there's a story here. Let's go. The next step is that we do a pre-interview with the person. And in a pre-interview, we get a sense of whether they could tell their story, whether it's true or not. And also, we help them tell their stories. Who, a lot of entrepreneurs are not good at telling their stories well. They're not good at letting their story just come out. So we do a pre-interview where we, we work with them to help them tell their story. 
So then I'm, I record my interview. It's all set up for me because the person's been pre-interviewed and vetted and we've got research. I get to have a great conversation directed towards what I'm really curious about. And then I upload it to Google Drive and it gets edited and put up on the site. And that's essentially the, the process. I, I love how thorough you are before and all the research that goes into it. And I have to say, when I did the pre-interview before, one of the things that I loved about it was even just saying the things out loud and then being able to hear myself say them and say, ah, okay, okay. When, when, he, when Andrew asked me that, I'm going to say it a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, just hearing yourself say something like, maybe I'll change that yeah. when he actually asked me. But it was a huge help. It's a big investment for us. There have been times when that was the most expensive part of doing the interviews. You can imagine that, um, especially in the beginning when there wasn't a process and the interviewer needs to be ready, the pre-interviewer needs to be ready, it becomes expensive to do it and then to go through and then spend time going through the notes and through the transcript. But it's worth it. What I think is really cool also specifically about your show is that you do so much work beforehand, but your style is so live, right? You don't Oh, let's say the show doesn't come across as overproduced. You don't come over and, and narrate parts of it like some other shows do afterwards. Even your sponsorships, yes. even the sponsorships yes. you do live and on the spot. And I think for a casual listener who doesn't know about all the prep work, you know, they're just like, oh man, this guy's just, you know, rolling up to the, to the screen beforehand, doing his interview and moving on. And that's really not how it is at all. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Yeah, I... I really value the work that goes into it. One of the early interviews that I did was with Derek Sivers, who sold his uh, company CD Baby and went on to blog about entrepreneurship and creativity. And I listened to another interview where this guy, where the where the interviewer asked the question. He totally didn't do his research. He said, what did you do with the money you made from selling CD Baby? Now, Derek Sivers, if you read anything about him, you find out that he says he donated all the money to an organization. He made the money and he donated to an organization that helps bring music to school. That's the thing you know. So this interviewer asked him, got an answer that was already public. I interviewed him. I, I read that Derek Sivers talked about it. I got to say, how did you donate it? What was the structure? Mm. Now, that sounds very boring, but here's what we uncovered. He just didn't have a chance to say it. He said he donated it in a way that allows him to take money out every year and gives him this incredible tax advantage. Now, if you're somebody, David, who decides that you're going to sell your company, to have that filed in the back of your head that, you know what, you could take the whole thing out and have it all taxed, or you could put it into this nonprofit that you probably would want to give the money to anyway, avoid taxes on the full sale, and get money out every single year, and feel like, you know what, I've done good in the world – there's a there's an extra option, a third way that no one would know about unless you spent a little bit of time doing research on it. That's that's the difference, and that's where that whole thing came from. Have you ever done an interview before where you went in, let's say, like less prepared or unprepared than you hoped, and and really regretted it afterwards? I went into interviews where I didn't ask the big question and I regretted it. My big one was I interviewed Fred Wilson. Mm. Just as Twitter was saying to all the developers who'd built on its platform, sayonara, go away, right? These are the people who created all these great tools, including the first Twitter um, apps for the iPhone. And then Twitter says, actually, we're going to take it from here. We don't need you. 
Fred Wilson was an active leader of the company. He's an investor and so on. Instead of bringing that up, all I did was spend time on what it was like to start his company, you know, his, his venture capital firm, which was interesting. It was interesting to hear the issues that he had raising money. It was interesting to hear how he changed the way that he talked and then was able to raise money. And that's how that's the money that he deployed into Twitter. But I didn't ask them that hard question. And truthfully, there had been runs where all I did was think about what a wuss I was to not bring that up. And I think it's good to feel that pain to say, if I don't ask the question that's on my mind, I'm going to have to beat myself up on all these runs for hours, for years it's going to come up. Forget it. Next time there's an issue on my mind, I'm going to bring it up so that I don't have to suffer like that. I don't want to have that unanswered question hanging in the air. It, it reminds me, I've been listening to and trying to read a lot of stuff by Navala Rivikant. I don't know if it's originally mm-hmm. his or, or something that he was repeating that he learned, but the kind of this axiom, uh, easy decisions, hard life hard decisions, easy life. And I've been trying to kind of mm. like repeat this and think about this a lot to get myself yeah. to do those those hard things in the moment. Like, you know, if you just do it in the moment, it will, it will really suck. It's going to be a, a really shitty moment, but it will be easier afterwards. And if you don't do it, you're going to suffer slowly forever. So, so in this interview, was that, were you sitting there? You were like, you know, afraid to ask the question or it was, a, it was just that you were, you were unprepared uh, beforehand and didn't know that it was something you should be asking? The truth is it's a combination of things. I don't know that it was explicitly, I'm afraid to ask this question. I do think that it's more like I had more reverence in the conversation that I should have brought in. I learned that from dating. If I, I, I found that there were these jerks who were dating women a lot, and I was someone who was so sincere, who so had like this their best interest in mind and all that, right? There's so much reverence that you bring in that it's overwhelming and it keeps the conversation, it keeps the relationship, it keeps the potential from really coming out. And I find the same thing happens in interviews. The more reverence I bring in or beyond a certain point, I bring in too much reverence and it really takes away from the conversation. So there was, there was partially that. There was partially me trying to stay on my agenda and and say this is what these interviews are about. It was partially me just just being a little bit nervous in the moment. So it's a bunch of different things. And the outcome was I didn't ask the question that I should have. And so I take that away from it, that I need to be able to ask those questions. But how do you keep yourself from getting, I don't know, overexcited or feeling like, you know, you're not qualified or something when when you interview the really big guests? And you've had some, you know, some crazy guests on your show. I tell them what I think. First of all, I try to do as much research as possible so that it's not me being lazy and coming in saying, I don't know anything about your business, but it's, I've done research. I looked it up. I spent some time. And by the way, if you don't care enough about somebody to do research about them, that's a good indication that you're not going to, to care enough about them to continue talking to them. And that's fine to admit that, that they're not someone I care about. Let's move on. Um, Remember Howard Stern, one of his producers wanted to bring on a major musician. I forget who it was, but they were huge at the time. And he said, I, I want to bring them. They're huge. And Howard Stern said, I agree they're huge. I agree people would pay attention. He said, I just don't care about them. And if I don't care about them, I can't make them interesting enough for the audience. And you have to acknowledge that, that you have to care. I do spend that time. And then when I don't, I tell them openly, I don't fully understand this. The ones who don't ask what the hell is this business about are the ones who end up sounding stupid completely through the notes. The notes make no freaking sense because they don't even know what the hell the business is about. And so you see it in other people. You see it in yourself. And truthfully, most people feel comfortable if you tell them I don't understand but I do have this need. Have you turned away a lot of guests? 
Yes. What would be, I don't know, give me like a percentage, uh, kind of like a pass rate. It's it's much. The, the thing is that the longer you're around, the more lists you get on for podcasters. And so we get tons and tons of solicitations. I have to hold myself back from being angry at the people who are sending solicitations who will email my brother at Mixergy, you know, and then say, I've been listening to your podcast for years. I can't wait to come on. And I could see what they did. And so they get Michael at Mixergy and they email him and they have their standard thing. And I, the problem is some really good people actually have a team that's not very good, but they deserve to be on. I, I won't give names. There's some major companies, over a billion dollar companies, founders want to do podcast interviews, and their team just doesn't know how to how to go about setting up the guests. It's just one of the worst things. Like you're starting off this relationship for many for for founders of major companies, it's not that big a deal. They'll get over that hit. For people who are trying to build relationships, when they send out these awkward messages that are clearly terribly done they're really hurting themselves and they don't realize it. But that's not that's not really the big issue. The bigger issue is, so it just happened on Twitter yesterday. Somebody mm-hmm. sent me a message and said, sent a message, I responded, and then he responded back something about, well, then maybe this makes p- for the fact that we had that interview bust up a few years ago. And I went back and I looked. There was no bust up. What happened was he asked to do an interview. I asked how big the business was. It was under 5,000 sales a month, which is which is really impressive, especially for a company his age. But it wasn't where I needed to keep my guests. And I said to him, let's hold off and have you come on when the business is bigger. I thought that was pretty politic of me to say it that way. But I understand that people get hurt. They just hit 60,000 a year run rate, right? I'm telling him it's not good enough. And for what? Who am I to say it's not good enough? And so I could understand how he would feel hurt and it was a scar that he's just saved there. And those to me are the hardest ones. Not the fact that I'm turning down a lot of people. It's that they're people's egos. They're people who are really deserving of being on, but they just don't fit whatever criteria. And so I say no, and it's it's a challenge. So I want to ask you about an interview you did a while back that I actually, I thought it was really crazy that it's a point to your transparency that you you published the interview. I don't remember the name of the guest. I'm blanking now. But on the interview, you asked them about the revenue. And the guest didn't want to give you the revenue. And then you asked another question, they, and they weren't giving that as well. And you know, you're doing video interviews. And I remember that And the interview basically got into an argument between you both. And then it kind of shut down like... It, with you basically yes. saying like, okay, so we're, we're done here. Do you know the interview I'm talking about? There are actually, truthfully, a few interviews like that, but I think I know the one <laughs> you're talking about. And there's a reason for that. The people who I interview are really good entrepreneurs. That's why I'm interviewing them. Good entrepreneurs are often very good at controlling their universes of saying this needs to happen. And I know you don't want it. And I know you don't believe it, but trust me. And so when they do an interview, they're losing some amount of control, and it's very easy for them to say, Andrew, I need this control to the letter. And in the beginning, I would go and edit out whatever they needed. I would start to make edits, and you know where we end up with? Ums being edited. People do not feel comfortable with themselves when they say, um, they want it edited out. And now suddenly, I'm getting Mm. petty requests, and I'm getting big requests where they say, I just revealed this thing, and I can't have it out there. And so then what do we end up with? We end up with the most bland interview with no ums and no revenue and no nothing. And so I decided as a policy, I'm not going to edit. If you're saying it, it's in there. I give you plenty of notice. We do pre-interviews. I give you plenty of notice before. I record myself telling guests before we start. If I ask you a question, here's how you can say no, I don't want to answer. It's totally fine. But let's go somewhere with this. 
And so I do it. And then the other thing is I want to be open about my failures as an interview. I don't want everything to feel so polished. I grew up listening to these NPR podcasts where the hosts were such good speakers. They were so good at articulating their thoughts. And then on the media podcast, which examines how media works from week to week, they did this brilliant thing. They said, I know we sound polished. We're going to show you what we edited out. And then I see Bob Garfield, this guy who's so articulate, who's a professional, stammer through asking a basic question because he didn't know. And he literally said to the guest, I actually don't know how to phrase this. And my eye was opened up. And I said, aha, I've been misled. The idea that they are perfect speakers has made me for years as a kid growing up believe that I am not a good enough speaker to do this. And what else is it about speaking, about entrepreneurship that's now being brushed under the table that we cannot we cannot do it because then someone else is going to say, I can't believe I did it. I'm hiding, I'm hiding this shame. And so when Matt Mullenweg, the founder of WordPress, I asked him, how'd you get your first users? And he said, I spammed. Other entrepreneurs might have said, Andrew, cut that out. I can't have that go on. You don't understand. We have investors. People in the beginning were spamming, but now spamming is terrible for WordPress community. It's an issue for us. I didn't even have to do it with him. He didn't ask, but others would have asked and they, it would have hurt. And so we leave those things in. It's like at this extra data point. Why? What else are we hiding that we should be aware of that other people might be doing? And so I, I want to have that kind of openness. You get more vulnerability for my podcast. You get more of me talking about my failures and my guests talking about their flaws. But along with that comes other things that would ordinarily be polished off of this rough story that people that people live. I think the line between creators and journalists is really blurred, if it even exists anymore. But there's so many creators out there that are are not taking that kind of a stance the way that you are and, and kind of holding up basic journalistic principles. Do you think that's a big problem in the creator community? And I I do. I think that I think that I don't know. I don't think that I am the paragon of virtue when it comes to that. I have to admit that there are issues that I have. Like there are people who, because I know them, because they even sent me a gift, even if it's an inexpensive gift, it might just be lodged in my head. And then the sense of gratitude comes out. And I don't have an editor who's who's going to say, Andrew, why are you leaving these awkward pauses in? Let's take them out. I also don't have an editor who says, you seem to have liked the person a little bit more than you should. Why not? It's a real It's a real challenge. You know, you could give a disclosure and say before an interview, I am part owner of this company or I'm best friends with this guest. Can you really give a disclosure about warmth and and these soft feelings that you have for someone? It's really hard, right? It's it's that's a that's a genuine issue that I have. I think the only thing that we could do is for now, just accept that that's a problem as listeners and then as creators realize that there's also an opportunity there, that there is an opportunity for somebody to say, I'm just going to be the straight up old school journalist, the one who's who goes through the sense of, I don't know, over encumbered ethics. And I think there's a there's an opportunity for that. Truthfully, that's not the, the makeup that I have. I grew up admiring entrepreneurs in a world that hated them. I grew up wanting to be an entrepreneur in a world where people wanted to be firefighters and police officers and whatever. I admire these people who did it. And I, I can't hold that back. So what's next for you? We've heard about your you're kind of in this in i guess thinking about your next stage right your your mixergy is on a stable ground right now but are there business ideas pouring through your heads i know there's always business ideas yep don't know i never i never was the person who had a lot of business ideas except maybe when i was in college and couldn't do anything because i was in college i'm now like 
retraining that muscle and seeing what ideas I'm looking at my computer screen here there's a picture of a tent and the reason there's a picture of a tent is because I had this idea you know what I love camping campgrounds outside of major cities are pretty inexpensive you could just get land outside of major cities it's pretty inexpensive you put some tents on there you sell it on or rent it out on hip camp which is the Airbnb of tents hundred dollars if it's a if it's a yurt for some reason people value yurts a lot we paid hundred and fifty dollars to be in a yurt as a family these prices are pretty high considering that it's just tent and campground. But, you know, when you live in a big city like I do in San Francisco, the ability to get out and just be in nature and have nowhere for your family to go except be together around the tent and spend an hour lighting the fire and making food, it's truly valuable. It's worth well more than 120 a day. I thought, what if and what if I do that? And I started looking at campgrounds. That's not an idea I ever would have thought of before. I'm in the frame of mind where I'm up for creative ideas and maybe one of them will be a campground that doesn't end up somewhere. Maybe another will be a chapter of a book that somebody asked me to write that then becomes a book of my own because I found a passion. That's where I am. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been awesome talking to you. Is there anything that you would like to let our listeners know where they can reach you or, or anything that they should check out of yours? If they Google me and try out my podcast, they'll get a sense of where, where I am. The last thing I'd leave is not how to find me, but how to find the people that they admire. I think we're living in an unbelievable time right now where everybody's heroes are much more accessible than we ever had happened before and probably will have it happen in the future. You're seeing Elon Musk suddenly give an interview to some dopey blogger who decided that this is the thing that he could do, right? That he could do an interview with bloggers. Now, Elon Musk has started to go retreat into, into his own world, but there's so many other people at that caliber who are much more accessible, looking to do interviews, looking to be featured on YouTube channels, looking to be associated with people who are creating good work. I think that we should take advantage of that by going in and saying, I'm curious about this person. I'm not going to have this glass wall separating me from them. I'm going to ask her to do an interview. I'm going to ask her to talk to me and give me feedback. There's just, it's unprecedented. Love it. Totally agree. And thanks again, Andrew. Right on. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leaders Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what's trending in the online sphere, make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our weekly newsletter at thoughtleaders.io. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts to stay tuned for the next episode. This podcast was hosted by David Tintner, edited by and produced by me, Noam Yadin.